0: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
1: Lead us the way of prayer.
0: Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted.
1: Lead us in the way of lament.
0: Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.
1: Lead us in
0: the way. Humility. Hum, hum, mil, hum, ah, mil, mil Ah, p, p, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.
1: Read it. in the way of justice.
0: Blessed are the
1: merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Lead us in the way of compassion. We're now in six weeks into this series titled The Jesus Way. And using Jesus' introduction to his famous Sermon on the Mount, we've been exploring the ways of Jesus as summarized by Jesus himself in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are essentially a series of blessings where Jesus begins his teaching by giving us a portrait of what the kingdom people, what kingdom people look like. So kingdom people, Christians, the church, what those who ushered in his kingdom look like. It's like he's essentially saying to us, when you're part of God's kingdom, the kingdom that I'm bringing into this world This is what you will look like. This will be your posture. This is how you'll present. And so, so far, we've dealt with the kingdom people. They all place their trust in Jesus fully. Kingdom people are not afraid of of emotion and, and learn through their trust in Jesus to lament over loss, suffering, and the brokenness of the world around us. Kingdom people take a posture of humility in all things, setting aside all pride, because pride drives us toward sin. But humility represents the nature of Jesus and helps us to take a posture of love, even for our enemies. And kingdom people hunger and thirst for justice. This is what we talked about last week, they can't stand it when others are oppressed by systems and structures that eliminate equality in the kingdom. These, these beatitudes, these teachings that Jesus gives us, these blessings, this picture or portrait of kingdom people, they're all interconnected, folks. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like it starts off with trust, And then it moves into lament, and then it moves into humility, and then it moves into justice, and now, today, it moves into mercy. All of these are interlinked, and all of them are necessary to be kingdom people on this earth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, our passage for today says, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The way of compassion and mercy, they show others the ways of Jesus. You see, compassion and mercy show the world Jesus Christ. And the New Testament, folks, presents compassion and mercy as fundamental characteristics of the mission and message of Jesus Christ. He means that showing mercy to others is actually a distinct way of Jesus. And, and in overall scripture, actually, mercy is an attribute of God, a really important attribute of God, actually, because if we didn't have mercy, we wouldn't have salvation. This is why Jesus says that those who are merciful will also show, be shown mercy. So, so what exactly does Jesus mean when he says that kingdom people are merciful? Now, again, when I'm using the reference kingdom people, I want you to understand I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about those who, who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. We are kingdom people. To Jesus Christ, that's the way that he described us. We're people of the kingdom and he is our king. So what exactly does he mean when he says the kingdom people are merciful? The Lexham Theological Workbook, I'm sure you all have that on your bookshelf, defines mercy as this. Mercy and compassion denote care, concern, and empathetic feeling for another person. In the Bible, mercy and compassion are most perfectly demonstrated and characterized by God's own merciful and loving care for his people. And in particular, by the gift of mercy through Jesus Christ. So now, at first glance, I'm sure many of us feel that that we we live this call of mercy, that the church is called to, to show mercy, to offer compassion to the world. And and you know, most of us generally are, are pretty nice people. I know most of the people that are probably tuned in right now, and generally speaking, you're fairly nice people. You're generally okay. Pretty caring. You know, we tend to try to be others-centered and focus our lives on helping people and making a difference in this world. And so a lot of us at first glance are like, yes, I'm living this call of compassion and mercy. And that all might be true, but I'm not sure that we actually fully understand how exactly Jesus expresses mercy and the implications that being merciful to others means for our lives. Jesus tells his disciples this amazing parable in the Gospel of Luke that that I think captures the heart of mercy and our constant misunderstanding of being merciful and having true compassion for others. Now, this is a parable that, if you're Christian, you know this parable super well. This parable has been used so often in the Christian church, but you can turn your Bible to Luke chapter 10, In Luke chapter 10, we have this beautiful picture of what Jesus means by being compassionate and merciful and a picture of those who are not compassionate and merciful. So Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, it says, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. I love this the experts the expert in religious law stands up to test jesus because that 's essentially what we do right When a teacher is teaching something, someone else will begin to challenge or test what it is that they 're teaching and and we, we think it, in our western culture that this is this is a super healthy thing, so pay attention to what actually happens in this section of teaching that Jesus uses. Because the the scribe, the teacher of the law, the expert, so to speak, uh, actually shows a lot of pride and a lack of humility in this passage. So it says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Now, stood up to test Jesus. He's really essentially trying to catch him in a teaching that goes against religious law, that goes against Mosaic law. So this is what he says. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's always our question, isn't it? Like, what, what can I do to live forever? You know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Or in our Western culture, what can I do to make sure that I secure my spot in heaven with a mansion and streets of gold? What, what can I do to make that happen? All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we've asked that question at one time or another. And preachers have told us what we should do. We should pray a sinner's prayer, which actually is not in scripture at all uh, and is a great big, horrible thing to do with people, but we're not gonna get into that. We'll preach on that another day. But the sinner's prayer actually isn't in scripture, folks. And Jesus never walked anybody through it, nor did any of the early Christians ever say, a sinner's prayer, Uh, but uh, that's a rant. Listen to what Jesus says about what I should do to inherit eternal life. So we're not listening to a preacher. We're listening to Jesus, the preacher, right? He says, well, what does the law of Moses say? Now he says something really important here. How do you read it? This is something I want us to understand in Christian culture Jesus is saying, well, go back to the scriptures. What does the Mosaic law say? But he doesn't just say, well, what does it say? He actually insinuates, how do you read it? And if we look at the gospel, and if we look at the New Testament, and how Jesus went about teaching, us as Christians are called to read the Old Testament the way that Jesus read the Old Testament. And this is a mistake that we make in the Christian church today because we we jumble up the Old and the New and we interpret the Old Testament one way and we interpret the New Testament another way. But actually what you need to do is start with the New Testament and learn how Jesus and the early church read the the Old Testament and then you read it that way. A good example of that is, for instance, uh, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, Christians read as prophecy of Isaiah speaking about Jesus. But historically speaking, when when Isaiah prophesies about Jesus, we read it prophetically, but the early uh, readers actually would have read it that he was talking about Hezekiah, not talking about Jesus. And so when he says uh, a, a baby born of a woman, the word virgin actually doesn't exist in the text at all. But we, as evangelicals, insert the word virgin into the Old Testament because it fits our reading of the Old Testament. And that's okay. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. But what we're doing there is we're reading it through the lens of the New Testament. So it's important that we understand that Jesus is saying, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Be careful to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Be Christocentric as you read the Old Testament. Don't be Jewish. But this is what we do. So he says, well, how do you read it? How do you interpret these scriptures? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And... Love your neighbor as yourself. So all of us are like, yeah, the guy's reading it right. This is good. This is good. He's reading it right. And Jesus agrees with that. Jesus says, right, right. Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, it's interesting. Because if I'm asking questions to Jesus and Jesus just told me I'm right, I'm probably gonna rest there. I'm probably going to say, this is amazing. The greatest teacher, the greatest rabbi ever just said that I'm right. I've passed the test. He passed my test. We're lining up with our reading of the Mosaic law. But that's not what happens in this text. Now we get into the story that we all know. It says the man, in verse 29, wanted to justify his actions. Ha. Huh. You're always gonna get yourself in trouble when you wanna justify yourself. We do this, don't we? we? We will constantly try and justify our actions or justify the way that we think or find reasons why people should think the way that we think. And So he's already been told that he's right. He's quoted the Mosaic Law. Jesus says, yep, you're reading it right. That's exactly how you attain eternal life. You love God first and you love your neighbor as yourself. He can't let it go. He's got to justify him, his actions. So he asked Jesus, "And who is my neighbor?" Here's where the reading of how he reads scripture begins to shift. "And who is my neighbor? I'm sure lots of us have asked that question. Who exactly is Jesus calling me to love? I get it, love God, but who really is my neighbor? Is it directly, literally my neighbor? What if I live in the country and my neighbor is like, like a whole concession away? Like I might not even know who they are and now I'm not loving my neighbor and now I can't have eternal life? Like what, what is happening here? And so the question, it, it kind of makes sense, but it actually sort of gets this guy into a bind because Jesus is gonna answer his question with a story. And it says, Jesus replied with a story. So he's now gonna tell us who is our neighbor. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along When when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, there is actually legal reasons why this priest passed this man by. He got beaten, he got stripped of his clothes, and he would have been bleeding. And a priest, according to the Mosaic law, was not allowed to touch someone else's blood. And so this priest made a decision here. Kind of like what we have to do in everyday life. We have to make a decision. What am I gonna do? And am am I gonna follow the law in the way that I read it? Or am I gonna just help this man? So he he saw him just lying there and he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. So there's his decision. I'm gonna follow the law a temple assistant, which would be a Levite, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, that, that's like even worse, right? Like at least the priest just made the decision, crossed the road, moved on with his life. The Levite actually goes and looks at this guy and then turns around and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. Then the text says in verse verse 33, A despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, so that the Jews hated the Samaritans, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his, if his uh, bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these, Jesus says to the teacher, which would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. So you've got two religious folks, who you would think you could turn to for help, and you don't get help because they feel convicted to follow their reading of the text, their version of the law. And then you have the Samaritan man who the religious people hated, who has compassion for the other. And this man, this this expert in the law, actually admits that the one who showed mercy is the one who took care of his neighbor. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, I know that we've all heard this story a million times. And I know that we all know the principles of we should be helping somebody when they're in need and that we should have compassion on others. But this story is actually super realistic in our world even today. When I worked with homelessness and addiction in Hamilton, I would have numerous conversations uh, with our residents, with the folks that would uh, spend the night in the shelter or those who were in our recovery programs. And often the ones who were in our recovery programs were quite literally living out of dumpsters and severely addicted to crack cocaine and and mess and all kinds of stuff. And I would have conversations with them and in my early days, I was this like naive pastor who really believed that the, that the church's calling really mattered. And so I would say, like, you really need to find refuge. You need to find a good church. You need to find a place where, where a community can care for you, can have compassion for you. And their reaction actually in my early days stunned me. But as I studied the church more and more academically and pastored in the church, it no longer stuns me at all. What they would say to me is, why would I go to the church? Everyone there just judges me, tells me how I need to change and makes me feel worse about myself. Now, I know that this isn't all of us, and I know that this is just a stereotype and that we can't throw everybody into that box, but that became the ongoing theme of every time I would bring up the church to somebody struggling with addiction or homelessness. Why would I go there? I've tried that before. Now, I also have spoken to Christians about this because I know this just gets you stirring, right? Gets you a little like, like amped up and you have answers for this. And the typical Christian rebuttal whenever I tell this story is that people only feel like that because they get offended by the gospel. I find that to be the strangest reaction I've ever heard in my life. The good news, they're offended by the good news. Has anybody here ever been offended when the doctor says, good news, your cancer's gone? You're like, what? I'm offended, I can't, I can't, I'm gonna sue you because you cured my cancer. Has anybody ever received good news and been offended by that good news? Why do we think that the gospel is offensive? Let me unpack that a little bit. This is the rest of what we say. So they, they, they just, they, they feel like that because they get offended by the gospel because they don't want to change. They don't want to change the way that the gospel calls them to. And they get upset with us because they don't want to change their lives. This isn't on us. We're just being loving by telling them the truth, giving them all the reasons why they need to change, and giving them the directions of what is wrong in their life and how they should go about changing it. The problem with this statement, folks, is that it's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says at all. You see, it's not biblical because the Bible presents mercy and compassion and grace as an attribute of God. So this is something that we need to be. And and so this statement can't be true because we've all responded to the gospel, right? We're Christians, we've all responded to the gospel, but we still struggle with pride we still need to implement change in our life. So in essence, if our theory on this is that they just don't want to change, my question to you would be, how are you defining change? Are you defining it through a lens of compassion and mercy, or are you defining it through a lens of religion? A religion that's based on ethics and ethics alone. Because I don't know about you, but I struggle with pride. I struggle with offering grace to to people, especially that I don't particularly like. So I guess I'm fighting against change and I'm angry with the gospel too. So how did I end up a pastor in the church? You see, this reason of they just don't wanna change doesn't make any sense. Here's the actual gospel answer. Jesus died for them, for us, out of his love for us. He died so that he could offer all of us grace and mercy. He's a merciful God, a forgiving God, a loving God, a grace-filled God. And it's a mercy that is so undeserving and indescribable. It's the good news. And it's great news that a man gave his life for us so that we could live, so that we could know God and experience God in a relational way. Listing off ways a person needs to change is not sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit will convict and direct a person to change if they truly believe. Change is the role of the Spirit, not the role of the church. Folks, this is biblical. The Bible talks about who implements change in someone's life, and it isn't you. It's the Holy Spirit working through you, pushing you toward righteousness, pushing you toward Jesus. So the the role of the church is to share the good news. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ gave you compassion and, and covers your sin with grace and mercy so that you could live. That's good news. And Jesus, doing all of this, never once begins to list off someone's sins. Well, you know, Peter, this is what I see in your life and this is how I think you should change. Peter denied Jesus three times and Peter is the one who Jesus asked for when he was resurrected. Bring Peter back to me. Peter is welcome in. Someone who denied me, Peter is welcome in. This is the good news, folks, that we are all welcome, that we are all loved, that we all receive the compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ. And that is what the church should be telling the world. You see, the best way to help someone find Jesus and implement change in their lives is to show them love and mercy. To first love God in your own life and then to show others your love for God by being compassionate and offering mercy. You see, in many ways in this story, Jesus would be the good Samaritan who stops and sacrifices. I want you to notice this. The good Samaritan stopped and sacrificed his time and his money, the two things in Western culture that we're often not really willing to sacrifice, our time and our money. He sacrifices his time and his money in order to help out someone he doesn't even know. Actually, in order to help out a Jew, that's important to understand because this Samaritan knows that this Jew he's helping out hates him. Hates him. And yet, he sacrifices his time and his money in order to help. Notice in the story, the Samaritan never says, and how's your life? He doesn't like say like, oh, you must be doing drugs or something. That's why you got beat up. So how's your life? Like I need to you know, do a little mini interview to determine whether I actually show you compassion or, or uh, mercy at, at all. You notice that that's not in the story. He just gives the man mercy and compassion with no strings attached. You see, biblical mercy, I want you to hear this. Biblical mercy is when you are willing to place yourself inside the person. I don't mean literally, that's just weird. But literally place yourself inside the person so that you can see with their eyes so that you can think with their thoughts and experience their feelings. Clinical psychologists would just call this emotional intelligence, to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes in order to understand how they feel, how they see the world, and what's happening around them. And I learned this very quickly at the homeless shelter. I learned to never judge a book by its cover. Always learn the person's story and put yourself into their shoes before you ever give any kind of advice. And actually, I often wouldn't give advice at all. I would just push them toward Jesus. Because when they truly accepted Christ into their life, the Spirit then lives in them. And the Spirit is the one who catalysts Change. And so I may come alongside them in a discipleship way and help them to recognize the Spirit in their early days, but it's not me saying, This is how you should change. It's me saying, Maybe God is nudging you to do this. This is the way of compassion. It's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to have for everyone. And folks, I'm going to throw this out there and it's going to get me all kinds of things but this is for all people groups. All people, remember last week, I talked about being made in the image of God. All people groups deserve compassion and deserve mercy from the church because that's the Jesus way. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter six. In verse 35, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Are we willing to do that? Lend to someone without expecting to be repaid. I just call that my teenage daughter. (laughs) Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly, listen, you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Think about that. He's kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must, verse 36, you must, not just sometimes, not you should consider. It says you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. He calls us to love our enemies, not just show love and mercy, to those that are close with us, those that we like. He wants us to show love to those that we don't like. That's what this Samaritan story is actually all about. Your neighbor is the person that you don't even like. If we jump above in this passage in Luke where he tells us to love our enemies, listen to what he actually says in verse 32 of chapter six. He says, if you love only those who love you, Why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. You see what he's pointing out here? What is the difference between the church and people who don't profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Are we showing the world a difference in how we love? He says, if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. It's easy to love those who love us in return, but Jesus calls us to have mercy and to show love to those we don't even know, to those we don't even like. This is the heart. Of the gospel, the good news. It's the heart of the story of the Good Samaritan to offer love and compassion to everyone even if we think they don't deserve it. You see, that's the difference between Christian culture, the church, the kingdom way, or the way of the world. You see, the world only lends to those who can pay back. The world only gives compassion to those who give compassion back. The church, the kingdom, gives compassion to the ones who the world thinks doesn't deserve it. Why? This causes me to ask a simple question, why? Why does Jesus give us such a difficult calling as the church? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, this isn't easy. Because it's what he did for us. Listen to how Paul describes the mercy and grace we've received through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter two. Once you were dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. It's interesting because even those in the church who refuse to obey God, this passage is saying the spirit at work in them is the devil. All of us, he says, used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, listen to what Paul says. This is this, uh, Folks, this, this is the gospel here. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God, who is rich in mercy, offered us his son, Jesus, as a living sacrifice so that we could receive the great mercy of salvation. And he says that since he gave this to us, we are to give it to others through other means of sacrifice, like our time, like our money. And it's because of God's mercy on us that we believers can confidently approach God in our times of need, even though we've not achieved complete righteousness. If you've achieved complete righteousness, like good for you, um, Huh, interesting, you're Jesus. You see, here on this side of earth, we will not achieve complete righteousness other than a legal standing through the eyes of Christ. That's the theological concept here, is that we are deemed righteous because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But in our actual reality in our lives, we're far from righteous. But we're allowed to approach the throne of God In our times of need, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That's the posture that Jesus calls the church to. When someone approaches us in need, we are to offer mercy and grace when they need it the most. None of us are perfect. All of us have a story and all of us have sin in our lives that we hide. We're far from perfect. We have subtle sin that we don't even notice, like things like pride. Yet God shows us mercy, grace, and compassion and he offers his son to us so that we can know him. Even when we're broken, Jesus offers us hope. He offers us grace and deliverance from our brokenness. And he's calling the church to offer these things to the broken too. And by the way, the Bible says we're all broken. This is the kind of mercy God calls his church to show the world the good news of Jesus is saturated in the great mercy we receive from him and we share with others. Listen to what uh, Jesus' brother James says in chapter two. James chapter two, verse 12. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. So that's judged through the lens of Christ if you're a believer. He's making an assumption that the people he's talking to here believe in Jesus Christ. So then he says, There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. This is the way of the kingdom. You see, mercy and compassion is not an option. It's not something we pick and choose who receives it. It's something that the church is called to embody in its posture in all things. So let me ask you this morning, are you part of the kingdom of God? If you profess Christ, Jesus says you're part of his kingdom. But let me ask you a really quick side question. Who's your king in your kingdom? We only have room for one king in a kingdom and in the kingdom of God, the king is Jesus Christ. Do you offer mercy, grace, and compassion to those that you don't even know? Because that's what the king has decreed over his people. You must show mercy and compassion to all and you will be judged based on your mercy and your compassion. That's what James is saying, because this is the kind of church Jesus calls us to be, a church that is full of mercy for all people. He gave us mercy, so we should offer mercy to all people as an example of Christ Jesus. I'm gonna turn things over to Tamil as she walks us through a time of reflection this morning
0: it's easy for us to look at other people with judgment and criticism we're all prone to this we don't often take the time to really listen to people's stories to understand where they're coming from or what they've gone through or to extend true compassion to them but scripture tells us again and again that we have a God who is compassionate And Jesus demonstrated this compassion in every interaction that he had with other people. When we really experience God's mercy and his compassion for ourselves, it transforms us and motivates us to extend his grace and his kindness to others. So as we wrap up this morning, just take a minute to let yourself be reminded of the ways that God has been compassionate to you. How have you experienced God's compassion in your life? In what situations have you experienced God's mercy and His kindness? Take a minute to remember those situations and to thank God for the ways that He's shown you His mercy and His love. And now, who is God calling you to extend compassion to this week? Maybe even today. How is God inviting you to let his mercy and compassion overflow in your life and pour out to others? May you experience God's compassion in a powerful way this week and extend it to every person that you meet. Kelly's gonna close our service this morning with a blessing from Numbers 6.
1: May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the
0: Lord show you his favor and give you his peace.